0: I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech Show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Throughout the decades, we've seen numerous advances in artificial intelligence. In the late 1990s, Catherine Havasi invented crowdsourcing for artificial intelligence. This made it possible for a vast amount of data to be collected and used for the Open Mind Common Sense Project at MIT. This is a project with a goal of teaching computers what we consider as common sense. Catherine Havesi is a research scientist that specializes in artificial intelligence. We talked about her work in this area, and she also explained the intersection between research and the enterprise. Before we move on with the interview, I'm really excited to announce that Season 1 of the 5-Minute Mentor podcast is now available. This is a podcast where you'll get advice from prominent people in tech, authors, journalists, artists, and more. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for 5-Minute Mentor. Go to mentors.fm for more information about the show. Thank you. Catherine Havasi, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Hi, happy to be here. Today we're going to talk about your work in artificial intelligence. This is an area that you became interested in, in part from reading the book, The Society of Mind by Marvin Minsky. And in this book, he constructs a model of human intelligence. What are some of the highlights from this book that you found particularly interesting?
1: I think for me, I ended up getting into AI actually before I read that book, which is possibly even a little bit crazier of a story. So I've always loved two things, one of which is language and the other one of which is theater, actually. And I was have always been into to what I think normal people call fairly weird theater. And so we were looking at ways to do uh, weird effects in theater. And because of that, I got this book on and this is the 90s. I got this book on fuzzy logic, if you remember what that is. And now it's sort of the the thing that you see on a rice cooker and, and pretty much nothing else. But in the back half of that, there was introduction to neural networks. And, you know, after we had finished the fuzzy logic project, at some point, I was just like, I wonder what the back half of this book is about. And that was actually the first time I, I started thinking about AI or getting into AI. And then I guess from there, I went to a lot of different places. Certainly society Mind was one of them. And I think for me, I've really always been really interested in language, um, both language through the ages and how we use language, but also sort of the beauty of it. You know, we're very expressive and we love to communicate with each other. Right. And I think, you know, we, given when this is being recorded, you know, we we think about that more and more as we spend more of our time, you know, on Zoom calls with each other. And it was really my first, Society of Mind was really my first, as as a much younger person, my first experience really thinking about how do all the different pieces of how our minds work get put together to make intelligence and to make language and to allow us to talk to each other. And, you know, I think that there are some really interesting things there that I still sort of think about, one of which is my favorite is, you know, we know something best when we know it multiple ways. And I think we can think about that when we, you know, are trying a new skill or we're or doing something. If we know a couple of different ways to do it, or we know a couple of different takes, it's, it's always a little bit easier. And certainly from an AI perspective and an algorithms perspective, that becomes true as well.
0: And you went on to work at the MIT Media Lab and study under Minsky and You worked on the Open Mind Common Sense project, and as part of this project, which was in the late 1990s, you invented crowdsourcing for artificial intelligence. Before we talk about the details of the project, can you explain what crowdsourcing is?
1: Sure. So we were probably the first people to use crowdsourcing to train in AI, you know, depending on what you define as crowdsourcing. There's there's quite a bit of crowdsourcing and has been since sort of the dawn of time. The idea is that there are a lot of people out there who have the ability and have the knowledge that we want to put into computers, and so if you can get them all together to spend a little bit of time, and and these days it's paid, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well, to train the AI a tiny bit, you can put all of those contributions together and help the computer learn. You know, we all do crowdsourcing all the time, and we don't really think about it when you're trying to log into Google and you have to click the little parts of the picture that have the traffic signs in them. That's essentially crowdsourcing training something like a self-driving car or a simulation to know where traffic signals are. We're all contributing a little bit of the stuff that we're good at that computers aren't, and we're putting that together. And
0: for this project, what particular were you using crowdsourcing for?
1: Yeah, so you have to really think back to the 90s. There were, Google was like this research project on the West Coast, right? And there were maybe five or six different search engines, Ask Jeeves and Hotbot, and, you know, web design was kind of crappy and all that kind of stuff. And people who were, who were new to the web would go on a search engine and they would type in something like, my cat is sick or I would like to order a pizza into a search engine. And predictably, in part because search was terrible at those days, but also because that's not how you talk to a search engine, we would get really crappy results. So our idea over at the lab was to try to understand a little bit more about what people wanted when they type something like, my cat is sick, into the search engine. And in order to do that, we needed to have a really robust idea of, you know, people's motivations and goals and emotions. And there wasn't anything like that out there at the time. And so I think the idea was, well, why don't we just ask people on the internet? For me yeah uh, the idea kind of came from two places, one of which is that a couple months earlier, something called SETI at Home had launched now it didn't make use of people, but it made use of your extra CPU time. I don't know if anybody remembers this at this point. It just shut down actually only not that long ago, but it used to use extra CPU time to analyze signals from telescopes and try to see if anyone was trying to broadcast a message to us so you know it was the kind of thing that that you were really excited about in college. you know are there extraterrestrial life out there. And And so I thought that was pretty neat. And this was sort of the start of also the part online where everyone was thinking about curating their own lists of, you know, best websites and what are my favorite poems and things like that. And so I said, well, if we have all these people who are fundamentally bored on the internet, and I was bored on the internet, right, you know, why can't we utilize the power of all these bored people? And that's what it says in the proposal, to to sort of have them instead of make lists of different places to bake cookies and train an AI about things that we know the computers don't.
0: And a big component of this project was also the large common sense knowledge database. What are some examples of things that would end up in this database?
1: Yeah, we took all the data that people entered in and we built this database out of it. Plus eventually, All different sorts of things eventually happened. But basically, it fits into three buckets what we have in there, one of which is facts about the world. You know, I'm drinking coffee out of a mug right now. You know, coffee comes in mugs. People want to be respected. You know, a goal when you bake cookies is to have something special to eat. So it's really cause and effect people's goals, emotions, and physical facts about the world.
0: And later on from this project, You ran the ConceptNet project, which originating from OpenMind Common Sense, and one of its goals is to help computers understand the meaning of words that people use. Can you talk about some of the things that are under the hood, uh, like the core technical components of a system like this?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. So for us, when we we had been working on Open Mind for a while, and I think one of the reasons this project is a little over twenty years old at this point, and one of the reasons it was very long lived is because the original data we collected was stored in a very format neutral way. You can think back to you know the kind of technology you would use to build a system in the late nineties. That was a web system, and that's what we were using. But we were able to port the data forward, and I think that that was. Frankly, luck on our part that we we chose such neutral systems that it was able to move forward. These days, what we have is ConceptNet, which takes all of the information we got through the crowdsourcing and all sorts of information and that we get through partnerships, like we get stuff off Wikipedia and we get stuff off Wiktionary and things through different projects like WordNet or OpenCyc. And what we're able to do is really build a network of different nodes. And these nodes can be everything from brush your teeth to rain, which you might be able to hear is going on outside my window. And we make connections between them. And those connections tend to be different frames. And those frames can be anything from, you know, this is part of something to this is used for something else. And we have a a set number of that. So it makes a big graph where the nodes are different concepts you encounter in the world and the edges are how they're related to each other. And that's basically open data, right? So it's much more data than code. But what we do with that now is we combine it together with different, what gets called a word embedding, which is basically deep learning for language. And we combine it together with that to form something that's a model of how people talk and that you can use that model to understand how words work and how different concepts are related to each other. And so if you're working on an AI project and you need a lot of information about facts, about the world, or you need to include emotional analysis, uh, this is a good place to start to really take that data and be able to understand language use.
0: And yeah, one of the main components you're talking about is this word embedding and also the word vector. Can you give an example of a
1: word vector? Yeah, so in something like a word embedding, we can think of it as taking uh, one of these big graphs and really building a galaxy of different concepts where if we think about, you know, something like the Milky Way and we think each star is a different word, right? And you're moving through space and you're moving through topics as you move through space. Now, it's many more than three dimensions, but if we think about it like that, it makes a lot of sense with how these things work. And, you know, things that are near each other or similar to, are similar to each other in one way or another. And, you know, just as a planet that's out there or a star that's out there has a coordinate system inside the galaxy, a word vector is the coordinate system that we can use to find and understand what a word means and where its place in the world is.
0: And what are some examples of applications of this system that, you know, is has a goal of understanding the meanings of words?
1: Yeah, so this actually gets used in quite a number of different things. You know, we've been in at this point thousands of, of scientific papers and studies. There are some really fun examples that I'll give, as well as some really practical ones. For example, it's, it's used in search. We talked about search yeah. earlier. So it's used in search, for one thing, to be able to help expand search queries and understand what you might have meant. It's very helpful in what's called sentiment analysis. So when you write something on the internet or you're sending an email to somebody in customer experience, it can tell whether or not you're mad or you're frustrated. It can help you understand those things. Uh, We can help sort documents. right? So if you are on a news site or you're trying to only get information about a particular interest of yours, Uh, being able to figure out what the topic of a document is. These are all things that it becomes very useful for. We spun a company out of OpenMind in 2010 called Luminoso, which you probably have used or you've used a product that was touched by Luminoso. And it does two things, one of which is it helps companies understand what's going wrong with their products when people call customer support. And the flip side of that is that we also help companies build new products by listening to customer feedback. And so you probably have actually used a product in your lifetime that was designed using systems like this. And, you know, this is all open data. So lots of people use it to do huge wealth of things. Like you
0: mentioned, Luminoso is helping make sense of customer data. What are some examples of things that the system is able to identify?
1: So I'll give two quick examples. One of my favorite is that we were looking at data from people who had brought their car into a dealership and the dealership hadn't been able to understand the problems with the car. And so what happens next is the dealership ends up typing something into a computer and it goes back to the car manufacturer and they try to sort it out. And one of the things they're doing is really trying to understand the language that's being used here. And if the company took a look at all of the weirder things. Like there's a lot about carburetors and there's a lot about tires, but there's also something weird that was coming in, which is people were talking about two things. One of which is they were talking about the fact that there was condensation on the inside window of some of their cars. And separately, a different group of people were talking about taking their car into the dealership because it smelled bad. And the way they described this was quite creative. Some people said it smells like there's a dog in my car, but I don't have a dog. Some people said it sort of smells like a musty old attic. Some people said, you know, it smells, like my car has been cooped up for a really long time but I took it out yesterday somebody you know said something like it smells like somebody's grandparents house right and so the computer is really able to take first of all all the different descriptions of smells and say you know what these are all pretty related to the same type of odor and we're going to guess what that odor means and on the flip side of that if it says this is all ways to describe kind of a musty wet smell This also probably has something to do with people who have water in their car when they're not supposed to. And so this allowed the car manufacturer to find out that in a certain make of car, which hopefully you don't have, you know, the air conditioning hose would come undone a little bit and then water would start seeping in behind the dashboard and then mold would grow behind the dashboard. And so where people, dealerships thought, you know, people are nuts because they're saying my car smells bad. It turns out that there's this air conditioning problem and being able to understand that is something that really having a a deep understanding of language helps you be able to bring out.
0: You spend over 10 years, helping companies understand how to succeed, you know, in bringing research into the enterprise. You started your own company in 2010, like we just talked about. From this experience of working with companies and building your own companies, what is the approach into bringing research into the enterprise?
1: Yeah, when people are bringing research out of a university and into um, an enterprise setting, one of the things that they have to realize is that it's actually quite the journey. I think a lot of people come to MIT or they come to a university and they think, I'm going to grab this piece of technology out and I'm going to stick it right in my business and it's going to work right off the bat. And there's a lot more effort to that. And, you know, I think a statistic I saw once from the pharmaceutical company Bayer is that about 60% of the time that process doesn't work. Uh, And there are a couple of different ways to do it that really help. I think one of which is really finding a bridge between the people who are going to use the technology and the people who are building it. You know, I think when we're building technology as researchers or entrepreneurs, we really have a tendency of getting very excited about what we're building, which I do and thinking that it will solve a lot of different problems. But if you start trying to solve a problem without talking to the people who have the problem, it's probably not gonna succeed. So the real key here is that when you're developing technology or you're bringing emerging technology into an enterprise business, what you wanna do is find a really great match between not just a company and a researcher, but the end user, the person in the business unit, the person who's using the technology on a day-to-day basis, and the person who's making it, and the technology itself. So there really has, it has to answer a, a business question, and that should come before how cool the technology is. And I think we're starting to see more and more understanding of this, but there can be a little bit too much of a tendency and innovation to go out and find cool things in your field and try to bring them back into your company and see how that emerging tech can change how you do business. But really, I think it works best when you have something you need and you go out in the world to find a solution to a problem rather than the reverse. When it's problem driven, it tends to be a lot easier.
0: What about projects where the outcome might still be a little uncertain? Like if we're able to solve this research problem, it would help the business and there's a use case, but it's a bet where it could take a decade or several years.
1: Do you have any? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's definitely something where partnerships between researchers and and universities and businesses make a big difference. Uh, So there are two sides to this, one of which is is something that's 10 years or more. At MIT, we have something called the engine, for example, which is is supposed to be what gets called patient capital, or uh, we're going to build something big and it's going to change the world. And I think that there's you have to understand that there are actually people out there who are supportive and very interested in these kinds of innovations. And if you take this and you go to a normal VC, what you're going to end up with is an investor who spends the next two years calling you saying, this is great, but can we make it do something that I can sell tomorrow? And that's, that's not helpful. And so going out there and finding people who are interested in solving big problems, even if they take a long time and a lot of money gets started, is, is critical from an entrepreneur standpoint. From a company standpoint, we can look at some of the other stuff that we've done. We actually just spun a conversational AI company out of some of the work that I'm doing in MIT. And how that got started was interesting because it wasn't just from the research standpoint. We were really, really interested in sort of looking at conversational AI and saying, why are chatbots a lot of hype? Why aren't they getting things done? But on the flip side of that, we were actually approached by companies in entertainment who had tried to use chatbots and said, look, we can't fix this problem. It's not working for us. We've tried all this stuff. None of it works. (laughs) Um, Can you tell us why? And can you make something like that? And often that that can be very interesting, right? It can be very motivational to find real examples of where technology isn't working and use that to build and innovate because... You know, it's a real problem that's out there. And a lot of that sometimes also comes from sort of constraints. If we think about in AI right now, there's a thing called transfer learning that's sort of taking a lot of the AI world by storm or pre-training where you take a big model, a big deep learning model that's really expensive to train. You take a tiny bit of data and you change that large model to be a better fit. So if you had a model that was trained on every document in the web and you really wanted it to only know about how banks work or you really want it to only know about Harry Potter you would take a little bit of data and basically transfer the big model into the domain of of Harry Potter right or or whatever you want And a lot of that research came about from, and and that's going to be tremendously useful and is becoming tremendously useful in the industrial world as well as the research world. And one of the reasons it came about is because it mirrors a problem that researchers have where, you know, they don't have as many GPUs as Google. They don't have all the data in the world that's available to them in an open way. And so a lot of these techniques came from that kind of need. And so when there's that alignment, you can really see things work, even though they take a long time to get there.
0: So you think we're going to be seeing more of this where people can reuse and leverage uh, models that were, you know, developed for a
1: different kind of domain? Yes, this is totally one of the things that I'm very excited about and I've done a lot of work in. I think we've been making progress in doing it in other industries and I think in language, it's certainly taken off in the last two years. I think we've seen with some of the newer models, um, a lot of capacity to be able to train but a lot of it's still hard to do, right? A lot of it's still requiring, it's finicky, right? (laughs) It's a little finicky. But as that becomes less and less of a barrier, I think we'll see more of it in the market. And there are certainly... Stable production solutions, Luminoso being one of them out there that do this kind of thing. And I think we're going to see that. And we have to see that because the majority of the companies out here who want to be able to use AI to change things don't have all the data in the world. Universities don't have giant GPU clusters. You know, we're going to have to be able to do and motivate doing AI using the resources that people actually have. And I think on the flip side of that, it becomes really important for us to do that because we train these models. We use so much energy to train these models and we're just training the same thing over and over again. And, you know, we sort of all have to do our part to not waste in that way. And I think it becomes important to think, how can we make AI a little greener as well?
0: In the last few years, I started seeing a lot of conversations around ethics in AI and this can be an overloaded term. So I wanted to get your opinion on
1: the meaning of ethics in AI. I think when we do AI, we really all have to understand that everything that we're doing has an impact. And we have to think very carefully about that impact, right? And that goes a little bit beyond sort of the basics, right? Can we have that I think are are foundational for ethics in AI. You know, can we understand how AIs are biased and can we minimize that the best ability to our ability, ideally, as much as possible, if not completely? You know, can we not use biased AIs to make important decisions? Can we make sure that AIs can explain themselves in ways that people understand and that are transparent and they're not these these black boxes? And I think all of those are really important questions. I, I sometimes feel like people get, very excited about or talk a lot about scenarios like, you know, you probably heard of the problems about how do self-driving cars decide to um, do different, which gets called the trolley problem. You know, how do self-driving cars get themselves out of bad situations? If if something bad has to happen, how do they pick which bad thing? You know, and those are not going to be the decisions that we worry about, right? It's the little things and how the little things influence people. And I think as we become more and more aware of that, we can kind of build AI that's more centric to the users and to the people rather than just this thing that we don't understand that becomes a monolith.
0: Before we finish, the last question, which I like to ask guests that come on the show is, what would be some advice that you would give to young professionals? It doesn't have to be about career. It could be about you know, anything in general that you would like to tell them
1: right now, all I can think about is balance, right? And I mean, maybe that's the answer. And I think it's very influenced by events right now. You should take time to find your balance because if you do, you'll be more productive and happier overall. And you need to find that sort of within yourself you know what works for you how do you need to spend your time what makes you happy what energizes you what drains you what makes you really productive right and and sort of understanding what makes you happy and that's definitely very important you know understanding those things and taking time to take care of yourself is really important i think i should have taped over my desk and for a while i it was sort of my mantra it's you know It's a marathon, not a sprint. And I'm a runner. And I think about that, even though I probably will never run a marathon. And I think it becomes really important to remember that all the time because you can easily forget that when you get really into something.
0: Catherine, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great chatting
1: with you. Thank you so much.